Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, March 4th, 2018. The share IDs, the reference numbers for Friday, March 2nd, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11115. That's 11,115. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11117. That's 11,117. This morning, A Vision for You presents Becoming Right Sized. The big book teaches that to get over drinking will require a transformation of thought and attitude, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. We come to the program crushed by a self-imposed crisis. Compulsive overeating has brought tremendous suffering. The pain of our former way of life has caught up to us, and we lie wounded with self-inflicted injury. We recognize now more than ever before that most of our lives have been devoted to fulfilling our self-centered desires. The steps enable us to look at our lives honestly, reveal previously hidden aspects of ourselves, and become ready to change our attitudes and behavior. We ask God for removal of those parts of our character that cause us and others pain. The changes that can take place in our lives in the recovery process require a cooperative effort. God provides direction. We contribute the willingness to take the actions required. We have accepted not only our compulsive overeating, but the character defects, emotions, and deep character traits develop through many years of struggling to manage life. Now we desire the removal of the obstacles in us that prevent the flow of God's spirit through us and out to others. The real advantage of these steps is that they are a specific proven method for producing a transformation, a change in the way we think, in the way we feel, and in the way we behave. Ideas, emotions, character traits, and attitudes which were once the guiding force of our lives are cast aside, and a completely new set of conceptions, ideas, character traits, and attitudes begin to dominate us. Joining us this morning to speak on this topic is Lois C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. Lois is dedicated to the 12-step way of life and to carrying this message of recovery. Welcome to the line, Lois. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for all of your service this morning. I am Lois C. I am a grateful, compulsive overeater and bulimic from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I want to send a special shout-out and welcome to all of you who are new on the line. Welcome to A Vision for You. Welcome home. I want to begin my talk this morning with a prayer. It helps me get right-sized, helps me get centered, so let me begin. Dear God, I offer myself to thee to build with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, the victory over 
them may bear witness to those I would help with thy love, thy power, thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. To the grace of the big book, my higher power, the fellowship of OA, I have been absent since March 2016, and God willing, I will celebrate two years of abstinence this week. For most of my life, I have been overweight with a few times of being underweight. Today, I am right-sized physically. I'm almost 100 pounds down from my top weight and 30 pounds up from my lowest. I have spent my whole life wanting and trying to be right-sized physically. It is absolutely beautifully incomprehensible to me that today, that the first thought I have when I wake up this, each morning, and including today, is I no longer go, I can't believe I ate that. Let's begin there, right? But I can't believe that my thought is, how do I lose weight today? How do I get thin today? How do I control my eating today? My thoughts when I wake up each morning are entirely transformed. My thoughts when I wake up this morning is how can I be right-sized spiritually and how can I be of service to others around me? I continue on a daily basis to be right-sized as I expand my spiritual life. Um, Without the presence of God in my life, I really feel like I have a big black hole in the middle of my chest. I don't know how other people would describe it for me when I don't have a power greater than myself guiding my life, what I feel is a big black hole that is cold, it is lonely, it is empty, it feels nervous, it feels sad, it feels discontent. And before I found the 12 steps, before I found a vision for you, before I found OA, when I had that feeling, which was a lot of the time, I ate and I ate and I ate. Because like nothing else in life, food eased that feeling. It filled that big black hole. Now, I don't have to tell all of you that my food fix has only led to all sorts of other problems. And my food fix only gave me temporary relief. My food wasn't my problem. I had a spiritual malady. What I'm happy to tell you today is that my life has completely transformed. Today, I am spiritually right-sized. I can feel the sunlight of the Spirit in my life. That big black hole that I used to feel now is filled with sunlight. It's filled with warmth. It's filled with love. It's filled with contentment. It's filled with peace. If somebody would have ever told me that I could have gotten that from something other than food, I don't know that I would have even believed them. But it has been a long journey in my 46 years to find that sunlight. And I think like most people who have addictions, we can often identify where did we first sort of feel like we compromised our sort of own moral compass for our addiction. And for me, I was thinking about in my food history, where did that happen for me? And it happened early on. I was only four years old. I grew up on a farm in southwestern Minnesota, and we had 
values of honesty and hard work and pride in having a beautiful home, pride in um, really being the best we could be, pride in discipline. Um, and I remember my mom, it's the 70s, nobody scrubbed and walked their kitchen floor on their hands and knees except for my mom. And she was meticulous. And I remember her scrubbing and waxing the kitchen floor, which I thought was so painful because how in the world was I going to get to the cookies on the counter, which were on the opposite side of the kitchen from where I was able to play in the dining room and living room. And I remember compromising my own moral compass, which is I was a really, really good little kid. If my mom told me not to do something, I didn't do it. But I remember that first exception where I felt like I was being really naughty. She said not to go in the kitchen. Not only did I not go into the kitchen, I like did some amazing acrobats of swinging up onto the cupboard by balancing on the top of a cupboard door, shimming across all these cupboards to the other side of the kitchen. So now I'm worried that I'm going to fall, touch the floor, leave a footprint, right? But I'm also grabbing cookies and thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get crumbs on the floor. But it did not stop me from grabbing a handful of them and then shimming all the way across the kitchen cupboards back until try to leap into the living room onto the carpet, never to touch the floor. And I remember thinking, what is wrong with me? Why would I not listen to my mom, right? And why were those cookies more important than being good? I don't remember lots of details about food thoughts beyond that I didn't like things getting in the way of having cookies or treats. But I do remember going to grade school and for the first time going, oh my gosh, I don't fit in. I remember the girls talking about what size their first communion dress was, what size their jeans were. And I was like, gosh, I'm not that small. And then I started to wonder if I was not a popular girl because I was one of the chubby kids. I remember feeling lonely and without friends. I remember, remember praying to God, like, God, make me beautiful. Make me thin. And then I will be smart and popular and have friends. And so by the time I left um, Catholic school and went to a high school, 7th through 12th, um, I mercifully had an amazing growth spurt. And what happened for me is I transformed from a chubby young kid in, from that ugly duckling into a swan. And I really associated my newfound thinness, my newfound beauty, to be the whole reason I was now popular, I was now smart, I now had an amazing boyfriend. I mean, it was the 1980s at this point. He looked like Tom Cruise with a mullet. And he was adorable. And I remember that my growth spurt ended and I wasn't doing quite as many sports, and I just could not put down the peanut butter sandwiches. I would come home from um, a basketball game where I was a cheerleader, and I remember eating, and I thought, oh, my God, I am not going to fit into my uniform. I am not going to have a boyfriend anymore, and I cannot leave the food alone, and I am not growing anymore. This is disaster. I felt like my whole life was on the line. That how in the world was I going to keep this life I had when I couldn't put down the food, but yet I didn't want to give up everything that I had never had in grade school. And that's when I became a closet bulimic. 
And I stayed in that bulimia for the next 25 years. Fast forwarding to college and meeting my husband, um, once again, I was, it was all about the food. College felt very out of control for me. I really didn't know how to control all of the transition and the emotions associated with college. And I then discovered not eating at all. And that felt so exhilarating. And I gained, I lost about 40 pounds in college. And that's when I was at my lowest weight. And within four years of dating my husband in college and eventually marrying him, I gained 120 pounds. Now, if I ever had any doubt about being a compulsive overeater, a 120-pound weight swing should be absolute evidence that I've got a food issue. But I remember telling all sorts of friends and people, oh, I don't have issues with food. I'm not an emotional eater. Um, I just need to cut back on fat or I need to cut back on carbs. And I honestly was lying to myself, especially when I was at my top weight, that um, I was overweight. I remember um, going uh, with my husband to go see an infertility doctor. We had been married for um, several years and we just could not get pregnant. And my greatest dream in this world was to be a mom. And I remember sitting in this doctor's office with my husband and the doctor delivering some really tough news that he wouldn't treat us and wouldn't do IVF because I was obese. And he started talking about what my body mass index was. I was mortified. I felt like that was probably one of the worst moments of my life. And I wish that in that office, like if the floor could have opened up and swallowed me all, that would have been less painful than sitting there for the rest of the meeting. And I remember feeling so humiliated and I felt so angry at him. And I thought, how dare him to tell my husband I was overweight? Now, that is the insanity of my disease, right? Is if my husband didn't know at my 240 pounds that I was overweight, like he somehow noticed. I'm only five foot four. Like, like that escaped his notice. No, I have a dear, kind, and loving husband who didn't say anything, who always told me I looked beautiful. But was I overweight? Oh, my gosh. Yes, absolutely. And I was desperate for a solution. It was that humiliation that helped me white-knuckle over-exercise and purge myself down 100 pounds. But it was absolute white-knuckled dieting, white-knuckled abstinence. Um, I eventually uh, became pregnant with my twin boys. And after they were born and after I had gained almost all the weight back in pregnancy, um, that glow of those babies, which I had waited my whole life to be with, the glow of those new babies was completely overshadowed by my food disease. And I remember at the time thinking, I can't believe that I've waited my whole life to be a mama. I've waited my whole life to hold these precious, precious gifts. And my happiness is so clouded by all I can think about is when I'm going to eat next. 
but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to change. I didn't know what the solution was. And I was just, so now here I am, morbidly obese, trying to take care of twin boys. And I am just miserable in my skin, even though my dreams have come true with these beautiful baby boys. Shortly after they were born, I went on vacation with my parents. Now, my parents are like my biggest fans. They are so sweet and generous, especially my dad. My dad is shameless at bragging about me and horribly exaggerating any accomplishment I've ever had in my life. And he and I have never had probably a harsh word between us. And I remember him pulling me aside on that vacation where I'm trying to sightsee and I can barely move. I'm so overweight and I'm overwhelmed with these babies. And my dad pulled me aside and he said, Lois, you have got to cut back on your eating and lose weight. This is a man in the 30-some years of my life had never once said anything to me about food, never once said anything to me about my body, had never once said anything to me that was even remotely critical. And I was so mortified and crushed, and I knew how hard it was for him to say it. But he could see better than anyone that I was killing myself, absolutely killing myself, and he loved me enough to say something. It's so funny because... I kept living in this denial that I really wasn't that big. I really wasn't that bad. I somehow thought that if my hair and makeup were perfect, um, if my bag and shoes were fashionable, or my expensive clothing was cut just right, nobody would notice that I was living in a five-foot-four frame and weighing more than 200 pounds. After that conversation with my dad, I was determined to do any quest possible to lose weight. And I tell you, I feel like I've done it all. I've done low carb. I've done Weight Watchers. I've done kale smoothies. I've done paleo. I've over-exercised. I've purged. I've done everything, including overworking, to distract myself from food. I have tried it all. And by the time I came um, to about two years ago, I was completely emotionally wrung out. I felt like one of those hamsters on a hamster wheel that just could never get off. And I hated myself, I hated my life, and I hated that I was fat. Then two years ago, I was given the gift of a family crisis. I was completely blindsided. My husband had relapsed in his own recovery, and that's his story, not for me to tell. But what I can say is that my marriage was in crisis. I was miserable in my job. My relationship with my boys was suffering. I have never experienced such emotional pain is that marital crisis. I literally fell to my knees, sobbing, not in prayer, but in pain. I felt like the skin was being peeled off my body. 
I remember sobbing on my bedroom floor and asking, I can't believe I have messed up my life. What should I do? Should I get divorced? What was I going to do about my job? How was I going to single parent my kids? Where was I going to live? I really describe this as my I moment. As if I hadn't had a whole lifetime of I moments, right? But I was really relying on my finite self, not my infinite higher power. You know what? We all come to this program. And I think this is the why I didn't know until I came to recovery, is that every one of us, Everyone on this line right now has a story that will bring each one of us to our knees. There is no one on this line right now who has not known an enormous pain, enormous loss, whether it is a serious illness or a loss of a job, a loss of a loved one, a loss of a marriage. There is no one among us who hasn't experienced great pain. Before I came to recovery, I thought I was the only one. Poor me, poor Lois, right? The question I keep constantly asking myself, because there are days when I can slip into self-pity, absolutely, but I need ways to get out of myself. But today, rather than wallowing in self-pity, I take my brokenness to my higher power. And that's what I did that night when I was sobbing in my bedroom is not because I really wanted to go to a God solution. Look, I, I have a lot of prejudices about God people before coming to LA. I was scared of God people. And so um, if there's one miracle here today, it's that I'm talking about how important God is in my life because I used to be very scared about people who talked about God and heaven forbid I would not be one of the people doing it. And so... That's a huge transformation for me. But as I was on my floor sobbing, I thought nobody could screw this up as badly as I have. And why not give God a try? What do I have to lose? God clearly could not do any worse than I had done. And so on my knee, in that moment of sobbing, I surrendered. And I don't know why I remember the prayer. It's a little bit redundant, but I do. And it's just what I said. God, from now on, whatever you ask of me, I will do it. If you want me to stay married, I will. If you want me to get divorced, so be it. I will do whatever you ask of me. I don't even think I said I am. Amen. But what I do know is that beginning at that moment, I became teachable. That's how my codependency sponsor described it. I became teachable. So from that moment in my codependency program, I threw myself into the 12 steps. Now look, I've been working codependency program for years, but I've been doing it sort of casually, it was more a social group than it was really working the steps. 
And I thought, if I actually work these steps with any kind of precision or diligence, how much better would my life be? Because I had known improvement through the steps. I just hadn't known full release. And so I threw myself into the steps and I began at step one and I just started working as if my life depended on it, not because of food, but because of my codependency. I remember calling my sponsor saying, hey, I'm ready to do my fourth step. And she's like, great, let's do a four-step workshop. I think one's starting this week. And I was like, well, I don't know that I really meant today or this week. And the next thing I know, my sponsor has me going to two different four-step workshops, checking out which one I like better. And the next thing I'm like, I'm really doing this. What the world? And so I get to this four-step workshop and I thought, you know, they're talking about character defects. And while I was sitting in this room, I was like, well, I don't know that this is the right place for me. I really firmly believe that I was practically Mother Teresa. Like, that I was such a good and holy and wonderful person. Like, what could I possibly have to do in dealing with my defects of character? I tell you, that's how dishonest I was. What I found out in doing that fourth and fifth step is that I was a liar, liar, pants on fire about a whole bunch of things. What's interesting is that I wasn't quite ready to face the dishonesty about my food. And while I did a really meaningful fourth and fifth step, it never occurred to me to talk to my fifth-step receiver, my husband, or anyone about my food. Um, I've been hiding my food for more than 25 years, and it just was so a part of my life that I didn't even see the dishonesty related to that. Um, this was really still a time of marital crisis for me. I was still so relying on you know, my fellows around me in my codependency program and uh, one of my fellows who I call my Ebby. Oh, my gosh. She's so amazing. She just knew exactly what I needed. And she called me up and asked if I wanted to do a girls' night out of dinner and dancing during all of this. And I said, sure. She later called me right before we were supposed to go out and she said, hey, how does an OA speaker meeting sound? And I said, sure. I have no idea what she said. She could have said we could have been going out shopping for a Louis Vuitton bag. I had no idea what she said. I don't know how it's possible that I could be a 40-something person on this planet and not know what OA was, um, but I didn't. And I think that's just a testament to I wasn't ready to hear it. And so here we show up at this OA speaker meeting. And it was oh my God, this woman started talking and I thought, she has just described how I think, how I feel, and how I eat. Who is this person? I was really blown away by that first OA meeting. Not blown away to say that it was for me. Like, look, on the way home, I stopped with my friend at the grocery store, at a healthy grocery store, I'm going to put in quotes, right? I bought a few macaroons, I bought a bag of chips, and I love that my Evie, while in that grocery store, said not one word. I love that we could go to an OA meeting, and she knew I wasn't quite ready, and she wasn't going to say, whoa, what are you buying, for heaven's sake? 
but she did what any great fellow will do, which is she will continue to provide opportunity. So a month later, she invited me back to the same OA speaker meeting and said that she was getting her four-year medallion. Now, I love this, right? She said, come support me as I get my medallion. I'm like, who would I, I would be happy to show up and support you. And at that meeting, um, Patrick spoke, and Patrick just did a special edition here um, a few weeks ago, and I was blown away by what he had to say. He shared about how his life was unmanageable. He talked about how he lived in the solution today, and I felt like he was talking about my life, and he gave me so much hope. After that meeting, I walked my Ebby to her front door, and as she was unlocking the door and I was walking back down the sidewalk, I felt overwhelmingly moved to turn around and stop. I turned around, I stopped, and I looked up at her and I said, hey, next year when you get your five-year medallion, I will get my one year. That was two years ago this week. And it has been a beautiful and amazing ride. I, she called me the very next morning and said, are you really serious about doing this? And I said, absolutely. And what did that Eddie do for me? She took me to eight OA meetings in eight days. I went to two to three meetings every day, every week thereafter. And um, I just dove head first. I got a food plan through the dignity of choice. I used that food plan for probably, gosh, eight months before I got a nutritionist. I still weigh and measure my food. Um, Weighing and measuring really helps deal with my food chatter. I have identified my alcoholic foods. I have put them down. Because I was working the steps in another program, I began over all the steps with step one when I came to OA um, and again when I came to Vision for You. I didn't come to Vision for You until a few months into OA. Um, what really sparked my interest in a Vision for You is that while I was doing all of these meetings in OA, I went to Lori's big book study. He came here to Minneapolis and I fell madly in love with the big book. I just felt like every single page had so much wisdom. It was my story. And I fell madly in love with it. And then I heard about this amazing meeting of where people discussed the big book every day. And I was like, I want to meet these people. I want to be a part of that group. And it really sparked my passion. I love that I could be working the 12 steps and be in other recovery programs for years. And I didn't even know what the big book was. That's how far away I went from the big book. What a gift that book has been to me and millions of others, my goodness. I don't want you to think that because I've had two years of abstinence and it's been a beautiful ride that there haven't been tough moments. There absolutely have been tough moments, especially over early on when I was detoxing from my alcoholic foods I remember going into a grocery store and there was an end cap of caramel <laughs> and I was feeling so sorry for myself. I remember 
I was like, and I cannot have that. And I started to cry in the grocery store, honest to God. And so what did I know from all of those meetings? Is that when you're having a hard time, you pick up the phone and you call the fellow. So I picked up the phone and I called the fellow. So I was like, I'm feeling trouble right now. It is really hard. <laughs> so my goodness, I have the biggest city party sometimes. And I had a, I love this fellow. You know what she said? She, she's like, get out of that aisle. <laughs> this is the practical advice that we need to give newcomers when they call. Get out of the caramel aisle. What are you doing there? And so I got out of that aisle. I also remember early on calling a fellow because I really wanted to eat some chocolate chip cookies. My son had called me crying on the phone because um, his dad had taken him to get a haircut, and he has this big head full of blonde curls. And ever since he's been really little, he's been slightly vain about those curly blonde locks. And he called me on the phone. He's like, Mama, she cut off all my hair. And I remember feeling so sad and so upset. And then I'm like, I really want a chocolate chip cookie. And what did I do? I picked up the phone and I called a Vision for You fellow. My gosh, she's like a black belt. Now, I have not been through all the steps at this point. I hadn't ever done, I hadn't even finished my fourth step. I, we're talking just a few weeks in. And um, I said, I really want a chocolate chip cookie right now. I'm so upset. And I told her that I wanted it because my son was so sad. And she goes, you don't want a chocolate chip cookie right now. You want a chocolate chip cookie right now, not because you're sad, but because you're an addict. You're addicts talking right now. You have a lot of selfishness. Like, she helped me figure out where I was selfish, where I was self-seeking, where I was dishonest. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's harsh. And um, But she was exactly what I needed to hear. And then she said, how about you quit thinking about yourself? And how about... You go and find out somebody, help somebody else today. How about you get out of Lois for a little bit? And I was like, okay. So she goes, call a fellow and see how you can be of service to them today. So I hung up the phone I, with her. I said a couple of prayers, immediately picked up the phone and called another fellow and said, hey, I need to get out of myself right now. I need to be helpful to somebody else. Tell me how I can be helpful today. And then the fellow on the other end of the line said, yeah, you could be helpful to you today. My friend's two-year-old son died. Can you pray for her and her entire family? They're absolutely in devastation. Oh, my goodness. Talk about making my son's curly hair seem totally inconsequential. Talk about getting out of myself. As soon as I was able to put down that phone, start praying for that family who lost their beautiful baby, I didn't want any more chocolate chip cookies. I was able to get out of myself and being into a mode of service. That's how my life has changed today. Today I have a way and design for living that helps me get out of my pity parties, helps me get out of myself. I have a fellow in program who has a motto that has really become one of mine, which is that only the discipline shall be free. Every single day in this program, I pray and meditate. I call a fellow. 
I weigh and measure my food. I pack up my food before I go to bed each night so that if there's any emergency, I can just bring it with me. I always have backup items with me. I continue to work with my sponsor. I work with other fellows. I sponsor other people. I try to be of service, whether it's speaking, sponsoring, reaching out to fellows. I continue to do a daily inventory. I continue to do 10 steps when I'm disturbed. But if I had to say that the key to being abstinent for two years, the biggest key for me is that continued conscious contact with God and my spiritual growth. I take my prayer and meditation very seriously. Now, I would not be honest if I said that I wake up every morning and go, yippee, I want to pray today. There are days when I wake up. Um, about a week ago after my ski accident, I was having a little bit of a pee party, a pity party about my broken leg. And I was pissed off. My goodness, I was pissed off about what my family was or wasn't doing for me. And I did a 10 step with a fellow. And I said, um, I need to do more prayer meditation today. And I really don't feel like it. And that's exactly why I have to do it. On days when I least feel like prayer and meditation, those are the days I most need it. It's an inverse correlation for me. And so I do it because I know that if I do not, I will be back in the food. Because, look, I am a hot mess. I am a hot mess in life without prayer and meditation. I am a hot mess without my higher power leading the way. Because my self-will just spells trouble. That's what it spells. And I can get into all sorts of situations I really should not get myself into because I am not connecting with my higher power. And so on days when I'm feeling least like it, on days when I'm feeling like I have no time, those are the days I have to do it the most. And those are days when I find every possible creative way to get in extra prayer and meditation. I, um, my coworkers are so funny. They know that I frequently will say I have to go to a meeting. Um, and I will step out. Uh, and that's a euphemism often to go to a private bathroom. And that's where I sometimes have to run and hide so I can connect with my higher power. Look, wherever you can go to be present with your higher power, if you can't do it amongst a whole bunch of other people, you know, I've, I'm just a practical person these days. I'll do whatever it takes. But I do that prayer meditation so I can remain spiritually fit. I don't like living in food hangovers. I think back to the days when I was overeating that the next day I was filled with regret and disgust because I felt physically ill. But I want you to know that I can today engage in emotional binges and have emotional hangovers because without the help of my higher power, I can be a hot mess of negative emotions that include anger, fear, self-righteousness, jealousy, resentment, pity, And I need a way to deal with these human emotions. I don't deal with them well on my own. And so 
I go off to the ladies' room. My gosh, I think my coworkers think I should put a, like a desk in the stall or something. My goodness. Um, but I need to sometimes go there to be alone. And when I'm alone, I first just try to connect with my higher power, invite God in. I then do my inventory, like, what's going on here? Where am I selfish? Where am I self-seeking? Where am I dishonest? Where am I afraid? I ask God to remove my defective character. And then I reach out to another fellow to tell them about it. Now, I don't always reach someone, but often just the practice of doing the steps before that, that negative emotion will will leave me. It's been life-changing to have that tool. I have the most amazing vision for you, sponsor. Honest to God, she is brilliant. I hope she writes a book at some point. She's so wise. And one of the things that she has spent just so many times reminding me is that it is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. And when I first heard it, I thought, wow, I think I could come up with some examples where that's not true. You know, sometimes my smarty pants, and for those of you who have spent maybe too much time in school like me, we sometimes can spend too much time thinking about all of our books, our education, our fancy degrees, and think we're smarter then. And so, but you know what? This axiom's true. No matter what the cause, there is something wrong with me. If someone hurts me and I'm sore, I am absolutely in the wrong. Maybe not in the way that I originally thought about it, but there, for me, there are no exceptions. And justifiable anger, look, if justifiable anger got around this issue, um, my brain could figure out a million and one ways to justify anything possible. I'm going to leave justifiable anger up to people who are not like me. Compulsive overeaters and people like me, I don't think we do so well with justifiable anger. And so if somebody hurts me or disappoints me just for today, I don't try to engage in justifiable anger. Instead, what I do is I try to live in self-restraint. Now, there is a miracle. Restraining my mouth, restraining my actions. Um, This is not a skill I was so good at before recovery. So I try to exhibit self-restraint when I'm feeling resentful or angry or any of those other negative emotions. And then I try to engage in honest analysis. What's going on here? Why am I feeling this way? And then when I pray and ask for my higher powers help, it is often in that prayer that I can get willingness to admit what fault is mine and equal willingness to forgive when the fault is someone else's. And so I, in dealing with these negative emotions, um, know that invariably they're going to come up during the day. So when I pray and meditate in the morning, I have a whole list of prayers I do each morning. But I also need to envision my day like a bowling alley. And I don't know if this resonates with other people, but I am not good at throwing the bowling ball 
of life down the middle of the lane. What I do in life a lot is that bowling ball is often going in the right gutter or in the left gutter. And what I try to do is envision my day in moderation. My sponsor calls it weighing and measuring life, just like I would weigh and measure my food. And so the reason why that's important for me, because if I'm not living in the lane, what happens is that I'm more likely to have negative emotions come up. I'm more likely to get pissed off. I'm more likely to get into a place of pity party. I'm more likely to get jealous. I'm more likely... And so in the morning, I envision my day. So what does it look like when I wake up today and I'm going to keep that bowling ball down the center? Well, for me, that looks like not overworking and going off into the gutter ball of the right lane. But it also looks like not procrastinating and having the gutter ball go off in the left lane. Um, It means that when I am being of service, I'm being of service to other people, but I'm not being of so much service that I'm running around with my, like a chicken with my head cut off. It also means that I'm getting enough sleep, but not too much sleep. Somehow in life, I didn't get this moderating way of behaving in all aspects of my life. That's just food. I mean, yes, I overeat, then I underate. I overwork, and then I procrastinate. That is my life. I am not good at living in the lane. And so part of my prayer and meditation every day is what does living in the lane look like for me? And so I do all of this work because I am working to be right-sized. I'm working to be right-sized physically, which has happened as a result of being right-sized spiritually. And I really feel like the weight has taken care of itself. If I focused on my spiritual life, focused on the big book, focused on the 12 steps, the weight has absolutely just melted away. It is just an absolute miracle to me that I can live in a new way today, that I can live in such a small, tiny body. And yes, if you would have told me two years ago that I could live in such a small physical body, I think I would have done anything you told me to do. But what I didn't realize is that I wasn't just getting the bonus of this new body, but I was getting the bonus of this whole new beautiful life. I've had some tough things happen in the last couple of years, right? I've, um, I broke my leg skiing two weeks ago. Um, I've had a cousin who committed murder and then killed other family members. It was a murder-suicide. I've had some beloved ones pass away. There's some really tough things that have happened in the last couple of years. And I don't want to in any way not convey that I was not desperately sad, but I was not without the presence of my higher power with all of those things. And it has made all of those events easier to bear. And it's because I no longer face difficulties today alone. I now face them 
with my with my God. And that brings me tremendous comfort. There is nothing that comes my way today that I cannot face without my higher powers present. And wherever I go, whatever room I enter, my higher power is there for me. I had no idea how much my life had transformed, um, especially regarding food, until this last Halloween. Um, I was sitting out on a porch with my husband passing out candy, and my phone rang, and my husband said, oh, you better get that. This is a tough day for people. And I said, oh, what do you mean? He goes, well, there's candy everywhere. Isn't that hard for a compulsive overeater? And I was like, oh, my God, I love how thoughtful you are. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I had completely, completely forgotten that I ever binged on Halloween candy. And here I was, this enormous bowl sitting between the two of us, and I hadn't even given it a thought. If that is not a miracle, I don't know what is. God has given me a daily reprieve from this disease, this disease that almost robbed me of having children, this disease that almost in many ways ended my marriage, this disease that has over and over again threatened many of the dreams of my life. And because of the big book, my higher power, the fellowship. I have a new life today. I have a whole new life today. But I want to recognize that my whole new life, where I now adore my husband, have an amazing relationship with my children, love my job, that, you know what, it's still the husband, the children, the job that I was in despair over two years ago. How much the 12 steps has absolutely transformed my life. How lucky am I? But I also remember that this is a gift that if I do not continue to work for it, that it will not last. That I have an absolutely daily obligation to continue to work for it. That when I least feel like praying, that when I least feel like meditating, but that's when I need to do it most. If I want the gift of continuing to look in the mirror and not just seeing a new beautiful me, a new beautiful me that is joyous and free, that my obligation is to continue to do that daily work, continue to work with fellows, continue to help others, that that is absolutely part of my obligation. So for All of you who are on the line today who might be new and feeling discouraged or discontented, I want you to know there is a solution here right at your fingertips that we are all here for you. And it is my wish for you and my prayer for you that you will all find your right side, both spiritually and physically. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Lois, for your inspiring, miraculous story of a transformed life. Thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with all of us today. Quite a story. 
a message of hope and possibility for everyone. Thank you very much. Today's share ID, 11,120. That's 11120 for today's recording. Lois's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And now we'll transition to a question and answer segment. If you have a question you'd like to pose to Lois, you'll need to press star 1 to unmute. And please offer your first name and first letter of your last name as well. Who has a question today? Uh, this is Lucy. Uh, uh, Lucy. Okay, Lucy. One moment. Anyone else? Melissa C. Melissa C. Star one to unmute. Carolyn S.H. Carolyn S. Becca R. Becca R. All right, well, let's start with this list. Go ahead, Lucy. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Lois. Uh, I took so much away from this. I was writing notes, and I will listen to the recording again. But the question, I, I'm returning after 13 years being away from uh, from OA and uh, gaining you know, lots of weight. I, I actually was in denial about my overeating, and and, I, and I'm awake now. So it doesn't feel well, but I, I did see a nutritionist. I'm working with the sponsor, not from this type of uh, group, but I've been hearing it. And what I love the way you, it's like you have been transformed. You're not, the food is not calling to you. And so I, I am right now in justifiable anger. I'm cranky. I, I'm in within the food plan, but it's not, I don't have that peace yet. And I want that. So I've been wanting to know about the sponsors. You said something different. Your sponsor, even though you had done things, maybe you were you took picked up something that you shouldn't or whatever it was, that she gave you other opportunities. Can you shed some more light on how to go about finding this type of sponsor where I come from how? So it was a very badgering, uh, self-demeaning kind of um, experience. And I'm terrified of that so how does one go about finding a sponsor like you said instead of shaming giving you opportunities what am i asking for when i look for a sponsor Hmm. lucy thank you so much for your question um i have a lot of experience of trying to find sponsors in my codependency program and not quite so much in oa um, what I did to find this amazing sponsor is I quit trying to manage the problem, meaning I um, went to my one of my first OA meetings, and um, at that meeting there was this absolutely amazing woman who started talking to me about the program, and she was just helping me figure all sorts of things out. and. I just felt like she was such a good guide at the meeting. And I just said, will you sponsor me? And she said, yes. And that was my sponsor for the first several months. And then when I came to A Vision for You, um, I knew that I wanted a big book sponsor. And so 
um, I called my um, first OA sponsor and I said, I am really feeling drawn to do all the steps in a vision for you with an eye toward the big book. And I'm wondering, while I know I don't need your permission to get a new sponsor, I'd really like to have your blessing to go and work the steps with a vision for you sponsor and work through the big book. For some reason, that really feels like my path and feels like the right way for me. But both of these women, my first OA sponsor and my vision for you sponsor, these are amazing women who I've learned so much from. But the way they came to me is that I remember praying and meditating, God, please show me what's the right next step. Who should be sponsoring me? Where should I be getting guidance? And I always left these issues up to my prayer and meditation and really was confident that when the right person appeared, I would recognize it and and that that person would be there. And truthfully, this is not how I deal just with finding a sponsor, but it's how I probably deal with all of my problems in life today is that I really take it to God to say, I don't know. I mean, Lucy, look, I am one of the most ego-driven people on the planet, and so I have to constantly take big issues to my higher power because I'm not good at dealing with them on my own. And so that's how I found the right sponsor. They appeared, and I just knew it when I talked to them that they were, they were the right plan and they found the right plan. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy, for the question. Melissa C., your turn. Hi. Good morning, Melissa C. Lois, thank you so much. I really got a lot out of um, your share. And um, so you were talking about um, moderation in life, you know, like that going from, like, overworking to procrastinating and how – this, you know, recovery has helped you moderate your life. And um, that is something that I'm struggling with, you know, from time to time. And I'm just, I would love to hear you elaborate some more on that, how you invite God in and, and you know, what this kind of looks like in a day. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you for your question, Melissa. Um, I use my character defects as a barometer as to whether I'm living in that lane or a corridor. I sometimes don't recognize my own excessiveness or um, lack of doing something. I don't always recognize it right away. For example, I don't always recognize when I'm overworking. I don't always recognize when I'm procrastinating. Um, I don't always recognize when I'm doing too much or too little in any category of my life. But the way I sometimes use um, other indicators to know that something's not right is if I start getting impatient or um, angry or feeling judgmental or quite honestly just feeling bitchy, I know that I might be packing too much into the stream of life or I might be trying to do too much, or I might be trying to do too little. Like I need, if I'm um, moving on to 10th step number three for the day, that usually is a good pause for me to say, okay, what's going on here? For me, um, it's often because 
I have tapped too much into the stream of life. I love in the big book when they say at the end of the day, do we reflect um, upon our day? And we do that daily inventory about packing too much into the stream of life. If I have a direction where I can go, it's often that direction. And so if I'm doing multiple 10 steps, it's sometimes for me because I'm not living a life in moderation in many other ways. Because I can, you know, then get resentful because my son didn't get out of bed right away. Rather than taking personal responsibility that I packed in um, to solo calls and my prayer and meditation and a workout and breakfast all into an hour and a half before I was supposed to leave for work and then I thought I wondered how that was going to all work out. And so, and now I'm resentful because my son took an extra 2.5 seconds to get out of bed right? And now I'm doing a 10-step about it. And so um, I have to be mindful in my life about not doing too much or too little in any direction. And for me, um, generally, how many 10 steps I'm doing is a good barometer of whether I'm really in the lane or not. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa, for the question. Carolyn S.H., or one ton mute. Hi, good morning, Carolyn S.H. Lois, thank you so much. Um, I got so much out of what you said, and I love the bowling alley um, analogy. It's very meaningful for me. Um, I have three questions, and they've mostly all been answered, but I'm going to throw another one at you. you. <laughs> um, about um, working with others and um, how do you handle at the very beginning if you have um, a woman who really wants um, uh, to work the program but just can't um, put down the food and um, like has false starts over and over. And um, I personally will will always work with anyone. It, I, there's no, for me, there's no firing anyone ever. Um, but I'm wondering like what, how you handle that and, and if there's a way other than what's been working with others in the book, um, is there anything you do to help them um, access the willingness within them to, to really put down the food and start the process? Mm-hmm. Carol, thank you so much for your question. This working with others has been such an opportunity for me to engage in humility. I um, I really thought that working with others, I really translated it in the beginning to helping others. Like, how do I help other people get abstinent? How do I get other people on? And what was dangerous for me is that I really on some level wanted to be their higher power and um, and look I don't like to lose I'm one of the most competitive people on the planet it's why I have a broken leg I was racing my husband I passed him on the hill I was racing my son I passed him on the hill I was gaining on my other son and then I fell and broke my leg and so look I am not good at letting go the fight. I am not good at letting go of 
sponsees who aren't willingness because I somehow want to give some of my willingness to them. And I also just don't like to lose. And I have ego problems, right? I feel like that when a sponsee doesn't do well, that somehow that's a reflection on me. Or when a sponsee does do well, that that's a reflection on me. I constantly keep it in my prayer and meditation that how my sponsees are doing, whether they're doing well or not doing well, has nothing to do with me. I am here to work with others, and that's my job. So I try to keep that in context. Um, That's not easy for me. I also, the way I work with fellows is I'm always asking them to commit to something so that they have some skin in the game. Um, I'm asking them to commit to an assignment or commit it to a call. And I will continue to work with people if they continue to meet that commitment. They might be doing it imperfectly. They might not be uh, doing... But what I have found for um, sponsees who are in the food, that ultimately they selected themselves out. They weren't willing to ultimately commit to keeping a phone call, weren't committed to doing the homework, weren't committed to doing an assignment. And so I have always tried to be clear about when I'm done talking to a fellow, what is the next ask I have of them? For example, it might be something simple like, today I want you to email me uh, your food and what your prayer and meditation was like and which fellows you reached out to. And so on a Early on with sponsors, they'll email me every day and tell me what they're doing. And so, but with that said, as much as I have an ask of everyone, what that ask is will vary on who the sponsee. I really tailor my sponsoring to who the person is I'm working with. And so I really try to be led by what really feels right while working through the big book um, with that sponsor. So I hope that's responsive to your question. Thank you. Yes, it was. Thanks so much. Thank you, Carolyn SH. Becca R, star one to Hi, you. can I be heard? Yes. Hi, thanks for your share. I'm new to a vision for you and I've got thirty two days abstinent and I'm just I have that enthusiasm that I hear in your voice and I wanna know what your experiences with how you've maintained it. Um, my sponsor has said that I don't have to fall off the pink cloud. Um, and, you know, I've, I've incorporated all these touchstones in my daily practice, but uh, I just, I'm so, I guess, fearful of losing it. And um, I just wanted your experience with uh, early abstinence and, and what you did to just stay um, connected. Mm. Uh, Well, congratulations on 32 days of abstinence. That's amazing. Congratulations. I I approach every day as if it's my first day of abstinence. And so um, I love that saying, um, that story about the old timer who is talking to the newcomer. And Rebecca, it might apply to you, which is um, if you woke up at 6 a.m., and I woke up at 7 a.m. But some people in recovery really reveal you have more abstinence than I do in that 
abstinence is one day at a time, recovery is one day at a time. You've been awake longer than I have today. It's one day at a time. So I first uh, just focus every single day on today is my first day. Today is, and so what do I do today that keeps me absolutely feeling that sunlight and that enthusiasm? Yeah, you probably do hear a lot of enthusiasm in my voice, and that might be obnoxious to a lot of people as I think about it. Um, Yeah, I am just like high on life. I am high on recovery. I don't need to get it from the food anymore. And I do it because I start out every morning connecting with my higher power. And I think that uh, what I've heard from some of my sponsees is like, look, I pray. I don't feel like I get anything back. Look, there are days I pray and I don't feel like I get anything back either. It is not like I pray and then I automatically just feel something. There's some days where I don't automatically. Um, But I also want to say that early on, I didn't get as much back as I do now. I don't know why. And maybe that's just part of the evolution of my spiritual journey. But in the beginning, I just prayed. And I view prayer um, like opening a window or a door. That that prayer and meditation, I'm going to do it right here in the morning. The first thing I do when I wake up before I get into any other human contact, before I make a mess of anything today. I do that prayer and meditation so I can open the door or open the window. Because here's what will happen. If I have that connection with my higher power and I am sort of set with that for the day, I don't know when my higher power is going to need to come through the window, come through the door with that intuitive thought. Because there may be a time at 10 a.m. I'm in the middle of something at work. And this happens to me all the time where I'm in the middle of my work and something big will happen, and I'll be like, oh, my God, I have no idea what to do right now, and I've got to make a decision. And I really feel like because of that initial work in the morning of opening that window or door, that that intuitive thought, and I will say in a prayer, and it will be just a quick one, God, show me what to do. I don't know. And oftentimes, like, things will come to me that I know are not of my own right? They are like, I don't know where that came from. I don't even need to know exactly where that came from. And that's what happened. And so for me, um, yes, I do things strategically to set up my food so I don't run into food issues. And I do a lot of planning around food. But for me, the success of this program has been a spiritual one. Yeah, I have got to have logistics to make sure my lunch is packed. And look, I pack my breakfast and lunch every single night before I go to bed. And that's part of my discipline. But it's really the spiritual piece that keeps me on the right path. It's really the spiritual piece that keeps me willing to pack my lunch every night, keeps me willing to not get into big emotional fights with people, keeps me willing to keep my ego in check. And so here I am sitting two years in, and I am just as enthusiastic and as excited about OA as I was when I walked through the doors two years ago. Thank you, Becca R., for the question. Who else has a question for Lois this morning? Star 1 to unmute. Announce your name and your first letter of your last name, please. Valerie B. Valerie B. 
Laura G. Laura G. Camille G. Camille G. Mary Sue C. Mary C. Is that correct? Ginger C. Mary Sue C. Got it. Thank you, Mary Sue C. Ginger C. Anyone else? This will be our final invitation for questions this morning. Star one to unmute if you'd like to be put on the list. Kathy Jo P. Kathy Jo. Anyone else? Gina R. Gina R. Okay, very nice list. Let's start with Valerie B, please. Star one to unmute Valerie. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service. I've been so um I don't know what other words you've been blessed by this um by your share today. But uh and, and I'm gonna ask you to forgive me, but I heard somebody Lucy on the line and I was wondering if I could just quickly leave my number. She's a long lost friend. Uh we were both in how together. And uh if that's okay. Um I'll just do it real quick, Lucy, if you're on the line. This is Valerie, 240-277-5987. Thank you so much. Peace out. And thank you. Laura G., your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, everything here. Yes, Laura G. Go right ahead. Thanks, Leah. Um, my question is about, um, like you you said, oh, you said so much. Okay, I'll just figure out how to. When you're going through the day, and um, things are going great, I love how you said every day is a new day. That's how I try to live. And um, you said when you're going through the day, depending on how many ten steps you do you know, when you're out of balance or when you have to uh, um, reflect, you know, differently or figure it out. So when I'm going through the day and uh, I'm having uh, situations arise, maybe a a news channel, I get in front of a news channel and something terrible has happened or maybe somebody else is having a bad day and they'll say something that just seems offensive or something, something will come up. And I know that in your share you mentioned if somebody does something or I'm upset or I've I've been disturbed, it's me. And so when these things come up during the day and I and I'm thinking, what do I do? What is my what is my part? It gets confusing because I'm always trying to say that okay, something must be wrong with you. You're disturbed. So is there any differentiation between walking through the day? And you know you really haven't done anything, but this stuff is happening around you and you're you're upset. And yeah, donut sounds really good. So instead of eating the donut, I'll, I'll sit I'll sit aside and try to pray or meditate and do an outreach, like you said, which is always wonderful. But how do you differentiate between, okay, I don't have a part in this. 
when you really feel like you probably do because you want everything to be perfect. I'm thinking, anyway, that's it. I don't know if that's clear in a task. Um, no, that is, no, that's very clear. So I um, do some very emotionally taxing work. Um, I deal with child abuse. And so why don't I just share that one of the ways in which to test this axiom, right, that any time I am disturbed that there's something in me, right, that needs to change. Um, I was at work and I had this 12-year-old girl um, in court and she was pregnant with her dad's baby. Now, and he was sitting there in the courtroom too. And I don't think you can be a human being on this planet and not feel some anger and disgust and tremendous sadness toward an individual who has harmed his daughter in such a way. And I felt angry. And I also knew that in order to do my best work, I needed to figure out how I was going to deal with my own anger before I walked into that room that afternoon. And so I called a fellow and I did a 10 step. And I said, this man is spiritually sick just as I am. Please help me grant him the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant to a sick friend. How may I be of service to him? I selfishly want him not only today, but in the past, to behave without regard to his wants, his needs, or his capabilities. My self-seeking is that I am character assassinating. I am, I am calling him names in my head. I am better than he is. I am saying I would never have done such a thing to my daughter. And then I had to look at my own dishonesty. Yes. I have never hurt a child or my own son the way he hurt his daughter. But I have never walked in this man's shoes. I have no idea what has transformed, transpired in this man's life that he would do such a horrific thing. I have no idea what brokenness or what horrific things have happened in his life that he would behave in such a way. But I know that I at times, as a parent, have not been the parent I wanted to be either. No, not in any way, shape, or form the same degree. But have I yelled at my kids? Yes. Have I said unkind things to my kids? Yes. Have I been not a perfect parent? Yes. And so I had to get in touch with my own dishonesty and my own self-righteousness and my own just wanting him to be different and wanting the world to be different. And then I had to be acutely aware of my fear, my fear that this little girl was never going to be okay. Dear God, please remove my fear of this little girl of not being okay. Help me to quit relying on my finite self rather than relying on my infinite higher power. God, how be I be of service to her today? 
And so when I showed up that afternoon, I was able to set aside my anger toward him. And I was able to focus my service on kindness and on compassion and really strategically figuring out what was the best plan to help this little girl. How were we going to try to help her? And by being able to set aside my own resentment, my own anger, I was able to do much better work for her, that little girl who needed an adult in her life to say, here's what's going to happen. Here's how things are going to go. Here's where you're going to live. This is where you're going to get medical care. This is what's going to happen. And so there are going to be all sorts of times in which justifiable anger may seem like the right route, but for me, I'm not able to... I'm not able to deal with justifiable anger. I can't deal with justifiable anger without eventually picking up the food. I'm not, I'm not a lot of normal men, I guess. There it is. It also gets in my way of being of maximum service to the people around me. It's not just about me picking up the food, but I can't be of service. And so that's how I deal with justifiable anger today. Thank you. Uh, thank, thank you. Thank you, Lord G, for the question. Camille G, star one to unmute. Camille G. Hi there. I'm sorry for the delay. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, good morning, Lois. Thanks so much for your service. It was a delight to listen to you from New York. <laughs> uh, this is Camille G. from Tel Aviv. Um, could you please give a few minutes to talking about how you go from so much information to transformation? Um, I've been in our way for over 25 years, and I don't have the peace that I want to have around food. I, I still don't have it today. And I do a lot of work. I do vision. I do steps. I do service. I do, I do a lot. I do the big book. I, um, I'm involved. There, I go to meetings. Um, and I continue to have this quest. And it's um, not the piece I want. So could you just talk a few minutes about that, if that's not too unclear of a question? Hmm. Hmm. No, Camille, uh, thank you so much for your question. It's so nice to hear your voice. Um, mm-hmm. I, um, <clears throat> I use the bowling ball analogy about keeping things in the corridor because um, I can get life off in one direction or the other, not with food, but with a whole host of things, work, shopping, love. I mean, I can become a hot mess of too much or too little in all sorts of categories. And so the way I continue to feel that sunlight in the spirit of my life is to really begin every day with prayer and meditation and to end my day with um, prayer and meditation and inventory. And so that I can look back. I'm not good at looking at, like, well, what's the last three months have been? What have the last year have been? I am such a good forgetter. Um, Like, I don't have any lasting memory of how things were or what transpired. And so I need to do it on a daily basis. And so at the end of each day, I have to look at the day 
and I have to go through those questions from the big book that says upon retiring. And then I ask each one of ask myself each one of those questions. And I try to be do it after I've done my prayers. And sometimes I even do the set aside prayer because I need uh, to invite a power greater than myself in to even do a good evaluation, to even, you know, ask myself, you know, God, uh, please help me to evaluate my day. Please help me to view it in the light you would have me see it. Free me from morbid reflection of stuff of guilt and dishonesty so I might have a meaningful 11th step. I have to do a prayer before I even do the evaluation. And for me, I think... Uh, what Bill in crafting the big book knew about us is that we are not, <laughs> we're not good left to our own devices. We need the structure of doing that daily inventory. And so I'm better at seeing where did I get off course on a day-to-day basis and what corrective measure. And I use that inventory to say, tomorrow, this is what it's going to look like. I'm really not good at saying, oh, here's what next week or next month looks like. But I can say, here's what happened today, and here's what tomorrow should look like. And I just try to keep it really simple and really focused on the here and now. And then what I've found is that one day leads to two days, two days leads to seven days, seven days leads to a month, a month leads to a quarter, a quarter leads to a year. And here I am, two years later. And things are just as fresh and as exciting and clean. And I'm really grateful for that. Thank you, Lois. Thanks so much. And thanks for your specifics. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Camille G. Mary Sue C. Star one to unmute. Mary Sue, star one. Thank you. I'm sorry. Um, I have a question about your abstinence. Could you just explain a little bit about your definition of abstinence? I'm I'm having some difficulty with that. I I'm abstinence and then I fall off and I kind of have to keep restarting. So if you could share some information on that. Um, Yes, I'd be happy to. When I was working with my Vision for You sponsor, she's so smart. She is, um, she just knew that um, I may forget what my abstinence is. And so she spent time saying abstinence is something that never, ever changes. Meaning next month, next year, 10 years from now, it doesn't change um, your food plan is something that changes. You know, you might not be eating dairy right now because your nutritionist says stay away from it, but you might incorporate uh, dairy back in. And so when I was doing my step one with her about what I was at powerless over, I really did a lot of prayer and meditation about what food am I powerless over? What food... Once I eat them, send practically a lightning bolt through my body, and when I start eating it, I just cannot get enough. And so she said because 
we are great forgetters as compulsive overeaters. I want you to write down your abstinence in the, on the last page of the doctor's opinion, which was brilliant. So out came a pen, and I defined my abstinence as no sugar. And then I wrote down every possible form of sugar, honey. And then I wrote down all the other things that, for me, are alcoholic foods. I literally wrote them down in my book. I also wrote down food behaviors. For example, one of my, part of my abstinence is not just not eating sugar and some other alcoholic foods, but it also includes no purging. So no vomiting when I feel too full, no vomiting when I feel like I've eaten too much fat, or no, and so that went in my book, book as well. And then I got really specific, and about nine months ago, Something came up and I was like, oh, gosh, I wonder if I can have that. I, honest to God, wasn't sure if that was part of my abstinence or not. I pulled out my big book and I reread my abstinence list to help get clear in my head. It's funny that you could, you know, more than a year in, go, what was it again? But that's, I have a tricky head. I have a tricky head that will will forget. And so I wrote it down and... I also knew when I was doing step one about what I was powerless over in terms of food and food behaviors that I wasn't quite ready to leave step one. And I remember asking my sponsor for an additional week because I needed to do some prayer and meditation about one food in particular. And after I did that prayer and meditation for the week, talked to a whole bunch of more fellows. Um, I talked to three fellows every day in the beginning um, about what their experience was with step one. And then when I moved on to step two, I did it about that step and had them point out which passages of the big book were helpful to them. And during that week-long process of calling fellows, um, I realized there was another thing I needed to add to my abstinent list, and I did, and I wrote it in my big book, and it's been there ever since. So. Thank you, Mary Sue, for the question. Ginger C, your turn, star one to unmute. Hi, good morning, Leah. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, I feel like screaming. I'm so excited. I never can do the mute button. I'm like, Kathy Joe, was I unmuted? Yay, it worked. Okay, here I am. So thank you so much, Leah, for your continued service. And Lois, just such a beautiful, beautiful <clears throat> transformation. Your story was amazing, and thank you, God. God so clearly spoke through you this morning for all of us, and you're so right. All of us have so much pain, and it's amazing that we no longer see food as a solution to go through that pain that we're facing life on life's terms. So you mentioned the importance of discipline in your practice, and I just know that as an alcoholic, I'm undisciplined. So how do you work with this? What, what Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you're doing? Um, just since, as I just said, we alcoholics are undisciplined, page 88. And I'd love to hear more about that. Oh, mm. <clears throat> uh, well, thank you for the compliment, Ginger. That means a lot coming from you. Um, I, I have to keep certain structures in place to ensure that I'm successful. Because Um, I don't always wake up in the morning feeling cheery and chipper and like jumping out of bed. Um, I don't always 
uh, feel chipper about doing anything in the morning. And so because I know that about myself, um, one of the things I do is part of my discipline is I pack up my breakfast and lunch before I go to bed. Um, I also know that I don't always know how I'm going to feel, but I don't always know as a mother what's going to go right or wrong with my kids in the morning. And so part of my discipline is to always pack my breakfast and lunch before I go to bed. I keep backup food in my purse and in my car and in my freezer so that on a moment's notice I can go, oh, I need you know, X amount of protein, I need X amount of carbs, X amount of fat. I can just grab, 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 and then go out the door. Um, in fact, when I broke my leg and we were on our way to the ER, um, I my husband packed me an ER bag. I love it. You know, I had my charging cords for my phone. But it also included a couple of meals where I had all the right ingredients. And because we had gone on vacation, but even on vacation, I pack things into categories so that I don't ever, like my addict will get tricky, like, well, you cannot not eat, and if this is the only choice, like, there, um, I can see how that could be a dangerous place for me. And so I do a lot of discipline around my food and food preparation, Um, But I also do a lot of discipline regarding my prayer and meditation. If I had to say those are the two things I do the most discipline about is that I never know what the day is going to hold. And so I try to stay disciplined. Like the non-negotiables in my life are really prayer and meditation and and then to plan for food. And if something's got to change regarding food, I will call a fellow and say, um, look, I, um, I can't eat, and here's why. Here's what's going on. Help me figure out a plan. I need to get out of my own being in charge, so what should I do? And even now, I call a fellow to work those bumps out. Um, but I also try to stay very disciplined in many other areas of my life. I try to stay disciplined in sleep. I go to bed at a certain time. I wake up at a certain time, even if it's a weekend for the most part. I stay disciplined about exercise. Like this is the bowling alley for me, right? I can go in my old life. I could go two weeks and not give a thought to exercise and then do seven hours of exercise in one day. Like I'm a hot mess. Like I can't live without a corridor. And so today I commit to doing 30 minutes of exercise six days a week. I have a stationary bike in my house. And and so I stay disciplined with food, work, exercise, prayer, meditation. And what I thought my old life and my own brain used to think, oh, my God, if I did all that discipline, I'm just going to have no time for any fun in my life. Well, that's been such a lie. It's actually meant because I've had all of this discipline regarding some key areas of my life, including work. I will not work past 6 p.m. That's an absolute for me. And so um, these parameters that I've set up for me in life have only meant that I've had more time and more freedom. And I know that sounds paradoxical, but um, coming up for a regiment for me and to live in that corridor, to live in that lane, keep the bowling ball from either gutter has been so freeing for me. Thank you so much. 
Thanks, Ginger. Kathy Joe P, star one to unmute. Kathy Joe, we're looking for you. Star one, please. All right, let's come back to Kathy Joe. Gina R. Can I be heard? Hi. Oh, there we go. Okay. Kathy Joe, go right ahead. Gina, you'll be next. Thanks. Kathy this Joe. This is Kathy Joe Key. Please go ahead. Hello. I have Please the pleasure of knowing Lois. Oh, good. I have the pleasure of knowing Lois here in Minneapolis, and I have been able to see her transformation. And I'm one of the people that I did this process very slow. <laughs> and I saw Lois go headfirst into this program 100%. And in the big book, it talks about having a lurking notion. And I sure had a lot of those. And I hesitated and I waited. Lois, did you have any lurking notions? <laughs> Is that really your question, Kathy Joe? <laughs> I want to wait and make sure there's no other question. <laughs> okay. All right. Lois, Hearing that's really, uh, are you still there, Kathy Joe? Uh, let me um, let me take what Kathy Joe has said. Of look, I I originally had a moment where I felt like my skin was being peeled off my body. I was in so much emotional pain that I just couldn't get any worse than that. It was horrific, and so that's why I dove into the twelve steps. And while I took that pain in a codependency program, I got enough of my higher power to come to OA with, as my vision sponsor calls it, awe and wonder. And I continue in that awe and wonder. I am continually blown away that when I let go and I let God run things, that everything turns out so great. Maybe not great in my definition of how things should turn out, but I have so much peace and happiness. And even for the sad things that come my way, they're not faced alone. They're faced in togetherness. And that's togetherness with my higher power, togetherness with our fellows. I mean, who shows up in tough times more than fellows in all the bumps in the road I've had that were emotionally hard over the last two years. I have so many dear friends outside the program. But you know what? The people who are there in the biggest possible way with the most helpful things to say and do were my fellows in this program. I mean, you guys are an entire family. And so if that doesn't keep me working hard and keep me doing it every day, I don't know what would. So, um, no, I haven't had... Um, a lot of hesitation, but um, 
I do want that to know that even though my action has not faltered, certainly there are times when I'm like, ugh, I don't want to do this. Certainly there are times when I'm like, I'm too busy for this. Certainly there are times when I'm like, I'm feeling a little too pissed off to do this right now. Um, Gosh, I don't think I'd be human or anybody else would be. I mean, that's just part of life. But so when there have been times when maybe my attitude has faltered, my work in this program hasn't. Because the only way I can get to that newfound attitude is to continue to work, to continue to do each piece each day. So that's what I have, Kathy Jo. Thanks for the question. Thanks for all of your love and help. Thank you, Kathy Jo. And our final question for this morning comes from Gina R. Gina, star one to unmute, please. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. This is Gina R., gratefully recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, living in Green Valley, Arizona. And Lois, I wanted to thank you as well. And it was such a a blessing to get to meet you at the OA birthday party in L.A. in January and just hug you and connect the way we did. Um, I relate with you on the uh, being the smarty pants and um, all up in our head. And so we often hear this is a thinking disease, but then the solution many times is referred to as the language of the heart. And on page 25, it says the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. Can you go into a little more detail about how your thoughts, um, and this is what happened for me, basically strangled my heart. It was so bound up with my thinking that I felt like I needed a nuclear explosion to to break it open. And that did happen for me. Um, That may not be your exact experience, but if you have a similar um, experience, if you could talk a little more about that. Thank you. Well, Gina R., bless your heart. Um, it was so wonderful to connect with you at the OA birthday party. Um, what an amazing conference. And um, I um, I feel like on some level, for those of us who've been given the gift of intellect or been given the gift of education, that, oh, my God, gosh, can that be a hindrance in this process? Because I have constantly in life, if I haven't known how to do something, hard work, education, rolling up your sleeves, it would get her done, get her done. Just a little bit more work, just a little bit more self-knowledge, just a little bit more, you know, I didn't know how to bake cake. I was the worst baker ever. I spent an entire weekend reading a 700-page book on how to bake cakes. And I threw a party with this magnificent, magnificent, magnificent thread, I can't say that right now, um, of cakes that were like from a gourmet bakery that I baked myself. Because I firmly believe that as long as I can read something and can do hard work, that um, I, remember like, are you hearing a theme here? I, 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 I can fix all the problems. And and self-reliance. Self-reliance has been my code for such a majority of my life. And so 
I need daily prayer and meditation to level my ego. I have tremendous difficulty with my ego. And one of the things that gets me into trouble quicker than anything is that belief that knowledge, hard work, and a little bit of me can just fix it all. And um, so one of the reasons I need prayer and meditation is to know that I am not a higher power. I am not in charge. I often think about one of the things that's been hardest for me in recovery is that I constantly um, want to be the guy driving the bus rather than letting my God drive the bus. And even when I let God drive the bus, I am the worst backseat driver ever. Like, take a left here. Take a right there. Um, And so I have to constantly remind myself that I do not know the directions. And I have to stay out of the outcome business or the destination business. That I don't, first of all, I don't know the roadmap. I don't know the directions. And I don't know where we're supposed to arrive. Because anytime I start getting in my head how I think I know the world should be run, that's when things go very badly. It's like being on the ski hill two weeks ago. I've just gone down after my ski accident, and I can't lift my left leg. And I start immediately going into, well, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm like, how am I going to move out of the middle of this hill? And um, this isn't how the day was supposed to go. We were supposed to ski for another couple of hours, and then tomorrow I had all these plans for our family to do this and this and this and this. And then (laughs) I had this moment on that snowy ski hill like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not in charge. I don't know how today is supposed to go. And no, I don't know how I'm going to get off this hill right now. I don't know how our vacation is going to work itself out. I don't know how I'm going to get back to Minneapolis. And you know what? I don't need to know. I am going to wait here. I'm going to do some prayers. I'm going to connect with my higher power. And I bet the next right thing will show itself. And I do not need to know how this is all going to work itself out. And I am going to quit trying to, in this moment, try to manage it all. And so how about I, in this moment, when I'm hurt, let other people come and take care of me, let my higher power take care of me. And Ginger, that is not easy, or Gina, that is not easy for me to do. It just is not. And so here I am, two years into recovery, with a broken leg on the side of a ski hill, and what do I do two weeks ago? I'm starting to tell my higher power this is not going according to my plan. But because I have enough program, because I had enough prayer and meditation, even that morning, I was able to quickly see where I was getting off track, where the bowling ball was going into the gutter. And so um, what I can say is that what transpired after I broke my leg was absolutely miraculous. And I would be remiss today if I didn't say thank you to all of you for all of your prayers. Um, I have felt them. Thank you so much. So with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Gina R., for the question. Thanks to everyone who posed a question this morning. And, of course, thank you, Lois, for this delightful visit with all of us today. You've certainly been an instrument of helpfulness 
and a channel of light on the line this morning. Thank you very much for such a beautiful presentation. Once again, the share ID for this morning, 11120. That's 11,120. I'm going to close from page 164 from a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. Answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.